and he spots this woman in the distance and she's, she's just beautiful, just stunning. You know, the, the, the glance just turns into a stare and then his imagination starts to work over time and he thinks, oh, I've got to get to know that woman, I've got to have her. And so he goes and he finds her and he sleeps with her. Just, you know, just a one night stand. I mean, after all, he's the king. Imagine that the gossip columns, king caught with pants down, or Bathsheba gate affair. So he sleeps with her. Problem is that she's a married woman and her husband's off at war. And then she comes to him and she says, I'm pregnant. You what? You're pregnant? Stupid woman. And the first thing that David thinks of is, well, look, I know, operation cover-up. I'll get the husband to come back from battle. I'll get him to sleep with his wife, send him back onto the battlefield. I'll, I'll fix the birth dates and all sort it. Except the husband doesn't sleep with his wife. Next plan is operation adoption, you know. Get the husband killed in battle and then marry the, the poor grieving widow and adopt the child and you'll be a hero. And that's what David does. King David, he gets Uriah killed and he marries Bathsheba and she has a child. All done and dusted in his mind. Let's get on with life. So that was his biggest problem, bigger than the problem of murder and bigger than the problem of adultery is the problem of trying to cover up his sin. Because the problem with sin and the problem with guilt is that it, it festers and it, it eats away. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like gangrene, you know. Have you ever seen a gangrenous wound and it eats away at the flesh and it spreads rapidly? And sin and guilt, it, it eats away at the soul and it destroys the relationship with God. And that's what David found. See, he could carry on the hypocrisy, he could go to church, he could read the scriptures, he could rule the nation, but until he confessed his sin, until he dealt with his guilt and asked for forgiveness, that fundamental relationship with God, that was the one that was marred. And you know, God in his kindness sent a prophet called Nathan, you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and Nathan says to David, look, God gave you everything, why did you sin? And David, with tears in his eyes, just weeps before the Lord and says, I've sinned against you. David had to confess his sin in order to receive that joy of forgiveness. The same with us. Sin in the Bible is not a popular word, is it? We often think that sin is just this long list of things that we can't do. The Bible describes sin as, it's a relational word, actually. It's a relational word. It's basically the way that we we live in God's word and we just choose to ignore him. It's sin is turning away from God, the attitude that says, I'll pretend God doesn't know and God doesn't care and God can't see. The Bible uses words like um, transgression. It's a overstepping a mark. Or words like iniquity, which means that you've, you've missed the target. It's like the archer, you know, who, who fires his bow and arrow and he misses the target. It doesn't matter whether he's missed by a meter or by a millimeter, he's missed. It's like the, the javelin thrower who oversteps that line 
Doesn't matter whether he's overstepped that line by a meter or, or a millimeter, he's overstepped the line. That is sin. Rebellion, disobedience, ignoring God, us deciding what is right and wrong, and every day we do it. Every day we mess up. As I look out at church, I think most Christians fall into two categories. There's the, the people who have such a, a low, shallow view of God. You know, God's their, God's their mate, God is their buddy, God won't mind. And, you know, they come to church and the confession goes up on the screen. And they sit there and inwardly they're thinking, actually, I'm not that bad. I've got nothing to say sorry for. The other camp are the, the people who have such a high view of God. And God is so pure and so holy and so righteous that they just feel this wretched sinner that I am. And they wander around and they're, they're racked with guilt. And they don't have the joy of being forgiven because they think, how could God forgive me? You know, the God doesn't mind category and the God can't forgive me category. And what you've got here in this psalm is a brilliant psalm of David who recognized he'd done wrong and yet took that journey to joy of forgiveness. I want to tell you about Mark and Jackie. Mark and Jackie are a married couple. And to the watching world, they were just like any other married couple. Happy, harmonious, hospitable. Their marriage seemed to be perfect. But they knew that their marriage was falling apart. Their marriage was marked by bitterness and betrayal and envy and mistrust. And I'll tell you why. Because Mark was having an affair. And Jackie, she knew all about it. She could spot the signs, you know, the lies and the deception. But that marriage just wasn't functioning until the day Mark came home. And Mark literally wept before his wife. Wept with tears in his eyes and said, I'm sorry, I've been unfaithful. And Jackie incredibly forgave him. But it wasn't until he actually wept and acknowledged his wrongdoing that that marriage relationship could be restored. And I'm sorry if that's too painful for some people here. I really am sorry, but our world is full of broken relationships. None more than our relationship with God. And if we're to have a restored, ongoing, joyful relationship with God, that involves acknowledging daily our sin and our failure and then walking that journey to just complete and utter joy at knowing you're forgiven by God. And we're going to walk that journey right now as we had Psalm 51 read to us. So I'll invite Stephen Cathy to come forward and read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is on page 405. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, and you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The second reading is from 1 John. Uh, can be found on page 862 starting uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Psalm 51 was written uh, after David confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. So please turn back to it, it's on page 405. And I'll pray for God to speak to us through his word tonight. Lord God, you are a gracious and kind God who calls us your children through Christ. 
and then speaks to us through your word and by your spirit. Thank you, Father, for that privilege of hearing you speak. And I pray that the words from my lips tonight would be truthful and you give us all ears to hear. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. How do you make that transition from guilt to joy? The first step is this, three A's tonight. Admit. Admit your sin to God. So the amazing thing about this psalm is that David acknowledges his guilt. He acknowledges his sin. He's, he's not a vague feeling of guilt. David doesn't trivialize his sin. He doesn't glory in his shame. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't parade his, his ungodliness. He doesn't duck the issue. He calls a spade a spade. Look at verse 1 with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's saying, have mercy on me, O God. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I've no claim to the favour I'm asking you. But I'm just coming to you, God, a God of unfailing love, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, and I'm admitting my sin. It's a massive turnaround for David. David tried to cover up his sin and now he's confessing it. Look at the number of times the word my is used in those verses. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. Verse three, my transgressions, my sin is always before me. See, David learned that before he could experience joy of forgiveness, he had to look deep within himself. Look within and acknowledge that he had failed God. Search his own heart. Faith the truth that he'd overstepped the mark, he'd, he'd transgressed the boundaries, he'd missed the target, he'd, he'd ignored God, he'd done his own thing. Look at verse 3. I know my transgressions. I don't just know about them. I it's not that I can list my transgressions. I'm aware of them personally. I know them. They live with me. They walk with me. My sin is always before me, verse 3. Every waking moment, like a screensaver, it's always there. I know that I've messed up God. There's a, I hate to mention cricket as an Englishman, but there's a great letter about cricket that was written a few years ago. Let me read it to you. In line with the current trend to make Christianity what we want and what it's not, I demand that cricket now be played with an oval ball a baseball bat, goalposts, and 17 players per side. My team must be allowed to make up the rules as we go along. And to keep me happy, I also insist we must still call the game cricket. This despite the fact that countless others still want to play and do play cricket according to the old legalistic doctrine with 11 players aside and a bat and a ball. God broadly gives us the liberty to do what we like, but not the freedom to change his word. Friends, when we come to sin, God has put his word down, he's laid down the standard, and we have no liberty to change it according to what we like. And sin is when we say, I'll do what I like, and I don't care about you, God. And David needs to come face to face before his God and admit that he'd failed, to face up to that truth, to look in the mirror if you want and say, I failed you, God. I heard a, a, a good joke this week, and I apologize if it offends people. Okay. What's the difference between a man and a woman when they look in the mirror? A woman looks in the mirror and they see all the things that are wrong with them. They don't like this bit, they don't like that bit, they don't like this bit. And a man looks in the mirror and he stands there and he goes, 
looking good. And friends, you know, when it comes to sin, it's about looking in the mirror and you're saying, I'm not looking good. I'm not looking good at all, actually. I'm wretched. I'm miserable. I failed you, God. It's not pleasant to stare into the mirror with God's perfect standard and say, I failed. And, and unlike David trying to cover up saying, oh, it's his fault or it's her fault, we say, no, it's my fault. How about David, you know, how about he blamed Bathsheba? I mean, stupid woman to get pregnant. Or he blamed Uriah. Why didn't he sleep with his wife? And now he's come before God on his knees and saying, I know my transgressions and my sin. I've failed you, God. And David learned another thing in his psalm. It's there in verse 5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's saying, God, I know the basic truth that by nature I'm rotten to the core. Whether it's things we say or things we do or the ways we behave or the hateful or lustful thoughts, David says, from the moment I was born, my natural bias was towards sin. It's what the, bias call, what the, um, the Bible calls original sin. We're all born with it. We all want to do what we, what we like. See, for David to have that peace of mind and heart, for him to know that he was forgiven by God, the first step was to look at himself, to examine himself, and say, I'm not a nice person, actually, by your standards, God's. I'm actually wretched. But the problem with self-examination, you know, is that it can become this sort of wounded pride or this, or this self-pitying thing. And the problem with self-examination is that we just compare ourselves you know, with other people. And we sit there and we say, you know, compared to other people, I'm not really that bad. And David learned that to stop comparing himself with other people and to stop thinking he just sinned against Bathsheba and to stop thinking he just sinned against Uriah and to start realizing actually he sinned against the God of heaven. It's there in verse four. Against you, God. You only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Now we read this verse and we say, hang on a sec, what about Bathsheba? Surely he wronged Bathsheba. Yes, he did. Surely he wronged Uriah. Yes, he did. But ultimately his sin is against the God of heaven. Because sin is not a moral problem and sin is not a, a social problem. Sin is actually a theological problem. Because we sin against the God of heaven, whose standard is perfect. And yes, we hurt others, and yes, we hurt ourselves, but ultimately when we sin, we hurt God. And it's when we admit our, our sin to God, and we come to God, and we say these words, like verse 4, against you have I sinned, so you, God, are right when you speak, and you're justified when you judge God. Paul picks up those words in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, and he's commenting on God's faithfulness, and he says, God, you will, you'll judge rightly. You're always right. Now, I'm sorry, I'm laboring the point, but... Do you wake up and say, God, you are right and I'm wrong? Do you wake up in the morning or in the middle of the day and you stop and you say, God, you're so perfect and I'm, I'm just a sinner. Dear God, you're holy and I'm a wretched sinner. Please take your sin seriously. I don't know what the issue is for you. It could be pride, jealousy, envy, 
lustful thoughts, lying, hatred, whatever they are, get on your knees before God and weep and admit. Admit your wrongdoing. And I just wonder, you know, we, we use all, this, all these euphemisms like, I've messed up, or I've hurt you, or I've ignored you. And the Bible is blunt. It says sin is sin. Let's start using the word sin. Saying, I've transgressed your laws. I've hurt you. You're rightfully angry with me, God, because I haven't lived your way. Let's see the horror of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, the, the stench of our sin in the nostrils of a holy God. I'm pleading with you, admit your sin to God. That's the first step on this journey. The second step is to ask for cleansing. To ask for cleansing. You see, I fear that if we just admit that we start to actually you know, wallow in that self-pity or we become self-helpers, I can get out of this, we say. And David realised to be restored to a relationship with God, only God could do that. He needed to ask God to cleanse him. Not just admit his sin, but then ask God to cleanse him. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. It's not down to me, God. It's down to your mercy, God. It's about your unfailing love, God. Your covenant love with me. The love like a father to a child. Please forgive me, God. Verse 2. Wash away my iniquity. He's saying... Put me in the washing machine, strongest detergent, wash me, and then cleanse me from my sin. Wipe away every last stain, every hint of thought or action has offended you. Wash me, God. And look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. For those who know the Bibles, hyssop in the Bible was used by priests to cleanse a leper. So a leper was completely outcast, cut off from the world, cut off from society, cut off from God. And a, a priest would, would dip the hyssop in sacrificial blood and he'd sprinkle the leper and the leper was clean and welcomed back and restored and forgiven. And David is saying, when my sin weighed down on me, I felt like a leper, cut off from you, God. And I'm pleading with you, I'm asking you, cleanse me, wash me, forgive me. See, David is humble enough to say, God, I can't do it. Please, listen to the pleading in verse 9. Listen to David pleading with God, hide your face from my sins, God. He's saying, God, I know how much my sin repulses you and makes you want to vomit God and you abhor it, but please, hide your face. Turn your face. Don't look back in anger and block out my iniquity. He's asking, he's pleading with God to restore him. And yet he's also aware of how radical that's going to be. It's there in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's asking for a new heart and a new spirit, a new human will and a new mind. He's asking for a miracle. The word for create is a word that only God can do. He's asking for a brand new heart that is there to praise God, not sin. For those who know me, um, quite like cycling. Had a race recently, had a few flat tyres. When you've got a, a flat tyre on a bike, you've got one of two options, haven't you? You can buy those awful little puncture repair kits and you can sit there and you can find the hole and you can get the puncture repair kit and you can put the patch on and you can make sure it's okay and you can waste time doing all of that rubbish or you just grab the hole in a tube 
and you rip out the inner tube and you put a brand new inner tube in. And David is praying here, creating me a new heart, a pure heart. Don't just patch it up. I want a brand new heart to praise you, God. As you, as you read this psalm, let me ask you a question. What's the basis on which David is asking for forgiveness? What's the basis on which David can come to God and ask to be cleansed? He's asking just because he knows God. He's, he knows the character of God. He's seen how God works. Now let me ask you the same question tonight. On what basis can you come to God and ask to be washed and ask to be cleansed? You can come to God and ask to be cleansed because 2,000 years ago a man climbed a, a lonely hill called Calvary. And a man who had the pure heart and a man who never transgressed he put out his arms and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he promised that those who ask will be forgiven because he's taken all the punishment for your sin on his shoulders. Our sin can only be blotted out because Jesus bore our sin on the tree. Our sin can only be forgiven because God could turn his face away because he's poured it on Jesus. As a hymn writer put it, my sinful soul is counted free because God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. Do you actually ask for cleansing? Do you ask for God to forgive you? Not, not just when you first became a Christian, but daily, do you get on your knees and say, God, because of Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you for forgiving me. And my fear is we don't do that. We just acknowledge we're sinful, but we don't actually ask for forgiveness. And I just wonder, I just wonder whether it's because, because it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing to ask, isn't it? Creating me a pure heart, God. It's very dangerous to say the word creating me a pure heart, God, because he might just do it. He might just give you the heart that longs to love him and longs to obey him. It means that you have to stop doing the little things that you like doing. We don't pray because deep down we want to cling on to the, the sins that we enjoy. But to pray that prayer, cleanse me and wash me and give me a pure heart, God. Help me shy away from that area. Don't just admit your sin, but ask God to cleanse you. And then finally, accept God's forgiveness. This psalm is an extraordinary psalm because David had this, this great confidence this joy as he prays this psalm, right from verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfading love. Through to verse 7, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Down to verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's saying, God, you will accept me and you will forgive me and you will forgive me of the most heinous sin. I'm delighting in that. See, David prayed in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Remember, David lived before the cross. He'd seen God take his spirit from Saul and he's pleading with God, God, don't leave me. God, don't take your spirit from me. And yet, we live the other side of the cross where Jesus has said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. My spirit lives in you. And so that's why when we ask, we must be joyful that we are forgiven. 
God has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. Whenever we come and we, you know, we've asked and we've admitted, but we're not actually rejoicing in forgiveness. It's like we're, we're mocking the blood of Jesus, saying, it wasn't worth that much. David prayed, and then he said to me in verse, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He says, Lord, there was a time when my, my murder and my adultery and all my sin, it weighed heavily upon me. But now, God, I want that joy back again, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of knowing you. And there's a time, God, when I couldn't speak, but now, verse 13, I'll teach transgressors your ways. And there's a time, God, when because of my sin weighing down on me, I was wretched, I was miserable. But now, God, look at verse 15. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my, my mouth will declare your praise. I want to sing your praises, God. I want to rejoice because I'm forgiven. David is saying, to know you're forgiven by a holy God is the most joyful thing in the world. To know he doesn't count your sin against you because of Jesus. It's the most joyful thing in the whole world. He knows, verse 16 and 17, that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. He doesn't want burnt offerings. He doesn't want us to come to church. He doesn't want our money. He doesn't want just to serve him. He wants a heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He wants us to come to God with a, a heart that recognizes our sin and leave with a heart that's rejoicing because in Christ we're forgiven. And David is utterly, utterly confident that God will forgive him. What's the difference between a, an unbeliever and a believer? An unbeliever is somebody who, well, yeah, they feel guilty. They know they do wrong things, but they don't know what to do with it. The nominal Christian, they feel guilty. They, they know they've done wrong things, and they, so they come to church, and they, they do things, and they say things thinking that God will forgive them. But the believer... They know they've done wrong things. They're racked with guilt. But they weep before God. They weep before God and they say, I'm wretched. And they look at the cross of Christ and with tears in their eyes, they say, thank you, God. Thank you that you've forgiven me. How dare we? How dare we question whether God can forgive us? What more could he do to show us he'll forgive us in Christ? Perhaps you're not praising God at the moment. Perhaps you're, you're struggling with joy in your Christian life. I just wonder, is it perhaps because you're not actually acknowledging that you're, you've done wrong things? Because when you acknowledge that you've done wrong things and you look into the face of a holy God and you see the person of Jesus on the cross, then you get that joy of saying, I'm forgiven by you, God. Thank you, God. Maybe you're just plodding on in your Christian life and you're just, you're just plateauing day by day, thinking, oh, I'm not that good, but I'm not that bad. And God doesn't really mind. This psalm is a great reminder of that great journey from guilt to joy. And I'm pleading with you guys to say those words, have mercy on me, O God. I know my transgression, my sin is before me. Against you have I sinned, God. But thank you. Thank me, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, hide your face. And then I'll praise you with my lips. And then I'll praise you with my life. We're going to have a moment of...
quiet time where you can reflect and you can pray. Similar to last week, there'll be some music, so feel free to listen, to look at the words. But bring your, bring your confession to God.